Bibles over to 1 Samuel chapter 5, 1 Samuel chapter 5, and that's where we're going to pick up here in just a minute as we continue this journey with the Ark of the Covenant. Let me just remind you of a couple things we talked about yesterday. If you weren't here yesterday, that's fine. It's not going to be like today's lesson is contingent on that. But a couple of things to remember is that with Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, it didn't mean God was finished. It didn't mean He was finished with humanity. And so the tabernacle, and in particular the Ark of the Covenant, is a reminder that God is still keeping this promise alive. However, it is severely limited. Only one man, once a year, gets to go into the most holy place and only then to make atonement for the sins of the people. So he's leaving the crowd, he's going in, he's, he's humbled himself, he's cleansed himself, he goes in. And what we saw yesterday, here in the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, is what I entitled the storming of Eden. You had people who were unauthorized to have the Ark of the Covenant go into its presence, going in. And not only that, they were treating it like a good luck charm. Maybe it will save us on the battlefield. And as we noted, when they went out, they lost the battle in a big way. And and all of this death occurring, which is a reminder to us, that if you're seeking to come into the presence of God in an incorrect way, death is going to result from that. That's the point that he makes. And so you had 4,000 killed and then 30,000 killed, and you had the death of Hophni and Phinehas and the death of Eli and the death of his daughter-in-law. And we said really all of that time is summed up in the name of an infant, Ichabod, meaning inglorious or the glory of God has departed. But as we noted, that's not where this account ends. Because now we're going to see a shift. We've been looking at Israel and the problems there. Now they've been defeated, and we're going to see the ark with a pagan nation and then coming back into Israel. And as we summed up yesterday's lesson in one word, maybe we can do that again today with the word Ebenezer. Uh, Ebenezer is going to be a word that we find later in the account where Samuel is finally consulted. As we noted, he's, he's brought in and God says, this is the man to whom I'm giving my word. And everybody knew that from north to south in Israel, but nobody's talking to him. They're doing things in their own way. Finally, they're going to make the decision to go back and to talk to Samuel. But that's only going to be after we go through a, a very interesting account as the Ark of the Covenant goes into the hands of pagans. So let's pick up there. We're in chapter 5. And what we're going to find is that with the the Philistines, this kind of arch enemy of Israel, the ones who who seem to always be a thorn in their side, they've now got their hands on, on God's Ark. The Ark of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned among the cherubim. They've got it now. And the way they're going to treat it is going to bring some very bad results. And so let's kind of dig into that and see what happens with this. When they defeat Israel, 
the Ark of the Covenant becomes something of a victory trophy for them. That's not an unusual thing. Especially when you're dealing with pagans, if you can get something that's identified along with their God, that this is a way of showing that their gods are superior to your gods, they're going to take that. And that's exactly what they're doing with the ark. And they bring it and they're going to set it up in the temple of their God who's known as Dagon. Now God gives us no real information about Dagon. So the only thing we know is what comes from secular history, archaeology. And even when you start looking at that, there's a lot of of differing beliefs. But I think the consensus is is that Dagon is is kind of this half-man, half-fish hybrid. And he's viewed by the Philistines and others in Canaan who worshipped him as somewhat of the father of the gods. He's the god of gods. He's the god of prosperity. And so as the Philistines are acknowledging their belief in him, they bring this this ark in and they set it in front of him as though he's gotten this victory trophy. But then we're going to have something very unusual taking place. So if you look down to verse 3, they come in, the people of Ashdod, this is the city where the ark is right now, rose early the next day. And behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So there's a lot of irony here. (laughs) And that's what the writer is trying to get us to realize. That they go in and it's like Dagon is bowing before the ark. And how can Dagon get back up? Well, he can't. So his people have to set him back up again. And I've often wondered what the the chatter in the room was. You know, was there an earthquake last night? Did did this happen? Did somebody come in and vandalize the temple? But they don't want to make much acknowledgement of it, so they just set it back up. But God's not quite done. And so we look down to verse 4 then. It says, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. It's interesting when you study the Bible that sometimes details are put in. Where the writer is saying, I need you to catch a point here. I'm not going to beat you over the head with it, but I want you to catch a point. Now he could have just as easily left it at Dagon had fallen and, and gone to pieces, right? Quite literally. But he specifically tells us that the head of Dagon and the hands of Dagon had become unattached. They had broken off. Now, when we think about that with the head of Dagon, there's probably some symbolism in the fact that God is showing just the worthless nature of this statue. That there's nothing there. It's just a piece of wood or stone or whatever it's made out of. It's it's empty-headed. But yet, if you put this kind of in the the scheme of the Hebrew Bible, and you start thinking about heads coming off, that carries you back, doesn't it? So there where God is pronouncing the curse on the serpent, and He says one day somebody's going to come in, and it's going to take your head off. It's going to crush your head. I somewhat suspect our writer is trying to make us think about that. Because here is this somewhat of serpent-esque statue, 
The one who in a sense is leading people away. And God is saying, yeah, I'm going to take the head off. I'm going to show you just a brief little glimpse of what I plan to do to that serpent of old. But I really think it's the hands of Dagon that's going to be the big deal in this section. And I want to illustrate that to you. That the writer is saying, okay, they came in and, and the hands of Dagon are broken off. And so what we're going to find is that this is going to tie in with the punishments that are going to be brought on the Philistines as they go through a terrible ordeal with having this ark in their land. And with the hands of Dagon, we're going to find that coming in, that word hand, coming into account as we begin to follow the ark journeying from Philistine city to Philistine city. So let's take a look at that uh, to, to see this as God uses it. I've got this on the screen. You're welcome to follow along in the text if you'd like. But I wanted to highlight here the word hand and how often it's showing up. So remember, the hands of Dagon are broken off, but the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now later on, we're going to see that mice factor into this somehow. We don't have a lot of detail about that, but we could imagine that maybe there is just this kind of plague-esque a grouping of mice that come in, like the, the frogs or the locusts in Egypt. You've got mice now coming in, and the mice are biting and they're inflicting diseases, and the people are breaking out in these big boils or tumors on their body. And so the, the people of Ashdod are suffering severely at the hand of God. And so, what's the thing to do if this is causing you to suffer? Send it to the next city. A lot of brotherly love in Philistia, right? It's like, we don't want to suffer this way. Let's send it somewhere else and see what happens. So we go to verse 7, and it said, When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. They're realizing what's going on. They're seeing what Jehovah is doing. So they send it packing. Verse 8, they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the, of, uh, the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of Yahweh, the hand of the Lord, was against the city causing very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out. So what do you do? You send it on. We go down to verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was very heavy there. Isn't that... Isn't that interesting what our writer's doing for us here? He's saying the head and the hand of Dagon are nothing. But when the hand of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh is involved, He's going to show what happens when He's disrespected. And so I don't know how long this is taking. 
I'm, I'm assuming it's several months that this is going on. And one city suffers, so they send it to the next. And it suffers, and they send it to the next. And finally, they just call their elders together, and they say, we got to do something. But now, before we get to that, let me make a point about two of these verses from a little bit different angle of something our writer is wanting us to see. We back up to verse 6. He says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And in verse 11 of chapter 5, they sent therefore and gathered together the lords of the Philistines, and they say to send it away, and you drop down to the end, it says, the hand of God was very heavy there. The point that we sought to make yesterday is that that word heavy is the same word for glory. So you've got this little word play going on anytime you begin to see a cluster of unusual words together. It's usually a pretty good sign you need to stop and think about what you're being told about that. And so just a brief glimpse from yesterday, we noted that heavy Eli dies. You know, same word there, he's a heavy man, he dies, the glory departed, that's what Ichabod, as, as he's, his mother's dying, she names him that because the glory's departing, and the heavy hand of God is there. And then you look at this section, and you find that the Philistines can't stand for what reason? Because the Lord's heavy hand is on them. And because that heavy hand is on them, they desire His hand to turn away. And then what do they say at the end? In chapter 6, verse 5, they're going to say, we've got to give glory to God. So you got all of this idea of glory involved. And you look at this whole section, and you begin to see when you do not respect the heaviness of God, when you do not respect who He is and what He stands for, Bad things are going to happen. And so that point is brought out very clearly to us. So, what's the key? we got to get rid of this thing. we, we got to get it out of our territory. And so, we're not going to spend a long time with this, but I, I think it's worth at least giving a passing glance as we go through. They say, now, it's, it's probably the case that we have offended this God in some way. And in that pagan kind of culture, if you offended a god, you needed to give that god some kind of peace offering. We even find that in the law of Moses, don't we? That, that idea, but not in the pagan sense that it's being seen here. And so they come up with an unusual thing. They say, okay, let's make some golden tumors and let's make some golden rats and, and let's send them back because this seems to be the message that he's giving us. We've had all these diseases and, and these rats have invaded our land. So let's make little idols of those and we'll send them back along with the Ark of the Covenant. But they say, you know, we need to make sure that, that we got all this right. Because it, I guess it could be coincidence, you know, it, it could have happened and this God's had nothing to do with it. So they come up with this strategy, they're going to put the, the ark on a cart. Okay, so let's tuck that away for later in the week, alright? So the Philistines put the, the ark on a cart and they say just to make sure, let's let the cart be led by two milk cows who've just had babies. 
We're going to keep the babies back and that mama cow instinct. We're going to see if that kicks in or not, that the cows are going to turn around and come back. Or if they're going to go, and if they go straight, then we'll know for sure that this is from the God of Israel. But I want to note a couple of things with you that happen here. If you're uh, here close, look over to chapter 6. And in verse 6, we once again had the Philistines giving a testimony about Yahweh. He said, they say, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Let's once again think how long ago that's been. You had the plagues. You had, Egypt, you had Israel come out of Egypt. They had their 40 years in the wilderness. They took the land of, of Canaan under Joshua. We went through the time period of the judges. Think about how many years have passed. How many generations have cycled through. But the story of God's destruction on the land of Egypt is still firmly fixed in these pagan minds. And what's happening is, we're seeing this contrast that it appears the people of Israel had forgotten all of that, but yet these pagans, they've still got it pretty much in mind. And they say, we don't want to fall prey to that at all. So they come up with this, this idea uh, with the cows and such, and they're sending them on their way. Now, let's, uh, let's go down just a bit to verse 10. It says, the men did so, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. Then I want us to note in verse 12, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. Does that statement ring a bell with you? Turning neither to the right nor to the left? This is the instruction God gave to Israel. This is the instruction God gave to Joshua, to the, the, the would-be kings. Don't turn to the right or the left. You stay straight with me. And it's, it's, so, <laughs> it's so ironic sometimes how God will use a beast to make a point. I think we find a lot of that in the book of Jonah. We're not going to get off track, but you know, you've got kind of the natural world obeying God. So I think God's giving kind of a jab to the Philistines and the Israelites in this. It was the dumb cows that figured all of this out to go straight ahead and not turn off to the right or to the left. Philistines watch all of this. And they see the men of Beth Shemesh take the ark and, and they're satisfied this thing is from God. And so they turn and they go back the other way. And so all appears like it's going to be great. You can imagine, you ever thought about being out in the field there in Beth Shemesh and you, you hear some cows lowing in the distance and probably that's not an unusual thing. But you keep hearing them and they're getting closer and all of a sudden you look and there's the ark that the Philistines stole. It, it's coming to your little village here, your little town. And there was great excitement with this. The ark has returned to us. And we look at verses 14 and 15. 
comes into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. It's a very spiritual scene. Sacrifice is offered. The Levites are taking the direction on all of this. Then more sacrifices are being offered. Maybe Israel's learned their lesson. Maybe they figured out what happens when you disobey God and now they're ready for things to go back to the way that they ought to be. Well, let's keep reading. Because what's going to happen is they're going to make a very bad decision. In chapter 6 and verse 19, we read this, But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the, uh, here's our word, right? Because of the heavy blow that the Lord had dealt. We're doing a lot of, of comparison and linking things together here. That reminds you of anything? The men looking somewhere where they ought not to be looking. And we think about Eve when she saw the tree that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise. She, wise she took, she ate of its fruit, gave to her husband also. What we find connecting these two events is that both were looking into things that were off limits. Both were looking at things where God said, you don't need to be there. Uh, as I was going through uh, that the last couple of days, just kind of thinking through this once again, it, it kind of struck me Eve's statement that it's almost like she adds this. We don't have God quoted as ever saying it. But she says, oh, we can't eat of that tree. In fact, even if we touch it, you think about that link with the Ark of the Covenant. Of, they're not supposed to be touching this thing. They're not supposed to be looking in it. This was off limits. The whole reason they were in the mess they were is because they had stormed Eden. They had taken it uh, unwisely, using it without authority. And here we go again. And so 70 of them are struck down at this point. And so what's going to happen now? <clears throat> well, people are going to ask the right question. Let's look over to verse 20. <clears throat> verse 20. It says, The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the ark of the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they ask the right question. But they make a bad decision. They're going to treat the ark just exactly like the Philistines did. Remember the Philistines, every time something was going wrong, they said, let's get it out of here. Let's send it away. And you've got the men of Beth Shemesh who are going to say the same thing. Why is God doing this to us? Let's get it out of here. Let's send it on. So once again, death has linked with an unauthorized use of the ark. And what that's showing, once again, is God is very serious about coming into His presence. 
God understands that we sin, yet God also understands that He's given us a way to deal with that sin. And we are not to come before Him in some kind of way that mocks His heaviness, His glory, His holiness. And that's what's gone on here with all of this. I do think it's important for us to think about the ark's new location. Let's look at verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. That's one of those places, again, you just kind of read over. But if you stop and you begin to examine where this place is, not necessarily geographically, but what's represented by its language, by its name, you find a lot of meaning in the details. Think about the city of Kiriath-Jerim. literally means the city in the forest or the city of trees. So here's a place with a lot of trees. And did you notice as well, they said they're going to carry it up to the house on the hill? Now why is it that we need to know that? Well, stay tuned. For the next couple of days, we'll, we'll see some things with that. Yet, if we look in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about Eden being up on this mountain of God. So here, you, you've got this, this city on a hill. And the house of the one who's now going to, to oversee the ark, Abinadab, His name means father of generosity. So what have we got? The ark is up on a hill around a bunch of trees in the house of the father of generosity. You think that's coincidence that all of that's being told to us? You think that's just passing detail? No, what's happening is is God is saying, now they haven't gotten it back where it needs to be, but I'm going to make a little Eden for the Ark of the Covenant here. So I'm going to make this little Eden-esque area where I'll be enthroned above the cherubim. And that's where we're going to leave the Ark for a while. Now, I don't know that it stayed there or not, but but yet we're going to kind of drop the storyline with the Ark for a while. And then tomorrow we'll pick back up later on, several decades later on, with the king who's interested in getting it where he thinks it belongs. So this is our story of all of the dangers that happened, but this story is going to end kind of on a higher note. Because as we mentioned, they finally go back to Samuel. And it's somewhat of a group repentance here, where they go to Samuel, they're they're wanting to seek the Lord. And this is where Samuel is going to set up the Ebenezer stone. Ebenezer stone, the Lord is my help. Kind of like our old song, here I raise my Ebenezer. Meaning, I'm putting my stone of help up here. I'm recognizing who's on my side. And I want us to note that as we close off these thoughts for today, what's involved with Samuel's Ebenezer advice? What's he telling the people in association with this stone? Well, one thing is, is you got to seek the Lord and you got to seek His protection. That's that's part of what's going on here. 
And so as they would look at this stone, what they would find is a reminder to them that God is the one who's going to help you. You've got to stay faithful to Him. Now, what Samuel is going to do in this very short little sermon that he gives is he's going to say that there's three things that you've got to remember. And I want to take these three things and I want to bring them to us. Because as we think about his words here, these wise words, these are words that transcend the centuries. That any time we're considering ourselves to, to storm Eden, to, to treat God in a way that he has said, don't treat me, this is going to be a pretty big deal for all of us. And the first thing he says is, you've got to give God your entire heart. So as he's giving this speech to them here in chapter 7, this is what he's saying. And we hear that, and that ought to set off some alarms too, shouldn't it? That as we think about giving God all of our heart, we think about what Moses said and then what our Savior said. He says, you want to know the greatest command? You want to know what that is? You love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These are the words that I command you today and they shall be on your heart. That's what Moses told the people of Israel. And then the Lord said, okay, let me answer your question. Greatest command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Samuel is telling the people that this is not something to play around with. This is not something to take lightly, that when you're dealing with God, what God is saying is, I am unwilling to, to fall to second place in your life. I am unwilling to take the leftovers after you've done all of these other things. I want everything or nothing. And what Samuel was encouraging the people, and in turn encouraging us to do, is that we begin to change our lives. So that everything we see is seen through the lens of God. We're going to deal with that Friday night, Lord willing, a little bit more. But it's the idea that when I'm a follower of God, there's really nothing secular in my life. You know, we, we have that tendency, don't we, to, to kind of separate the spiritual and the secular. If I'm a follower of God, there's really nothing secular. Because what I'm doing is I'm constantly evaluating and saying, okay, if I'm a citizen of this kingdom, if I'm a child of this God, what would He have me to do here? What would He have me to say? How would He have me to behave myself? And so whether you're standing in the church building or you're standing at the checkout line at Walmart, it's the idea of I'm going to carry myself and behave myself in such a way so that I am showing the glory to God. That's what they had to learn. That's what they'd failed to learn. And yet it's a lesson we've got to understand as well. And so let me reiterate, or I guess after yesterday, re-reiterate, that's only when we respect His heaviness. That God is indeed a heavy, heavy thought. How easy it is, and then we'll see this here in just a second, turn God into something He is not. And to treat Him in a way that is totally unworthy of the God of heaven. 
So Samuel says, you gotta, you got to give him the glory. you got to give him the respect that he deserves because the choice of that is life or death. I want to back up with you for just a minute to verse 19 of chapter 6. Again, we got a cluster here that we need to pay attention to. It says, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. You know, it would have been a whole lot easier, wouldn't it, to say he struck the people. End of verse, we're done. Three times. Three times in that verse it says he struck, he struck, he struck. Why? Because the point is being made that if you do not take God seriously, there are repercussions to that. And that's what the people of Beth Shemesh are going to find out. Now, let's take that uh, to, to ourselves. And we understand that as we're looking at this story, really, we're, we're picturing ourselves, are we standing with the men of Beth Shemesh or are we standing with the men of Kiriath-Jerim? The ones who are willing to take the ark and, and to put it in this little Eden-esque setting. That's the choice that our writer's putting before us. So then, what if you don't give God all your heart? What if you give Him just a part of your heart? Well, what happens is you start treating Him like an idol. And so Samuel tells the people here, what you've got to do is to put away your, your foreign gods. Put away this idea of treating God like he's some kind of pagan leader here in the land of Canaan. And that message comes strongly to us also. We hear this point made in sermons quite often. I'm not sure we ever really get it though. <clears throat> that idolatry is as big a danger for us in the nation we're living in as it was for the Philistine there at the house of Dagon. Just a matter of what our idol is going to be. And you look in our culture, in particular in our country, and you see it's not so much that you've got people bowing down to some statue. I would say the biggest idol we're dealing with right now is ourselves. Everything is about us. You think about how much money is spent on comfort. You ever thought about that? How much of our income do we spend so that we can have a comfortable life? And I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong unless it comes to the point of where we're saying that's the most important thing, that I'm not going to do anything that's going to make me uncomfortable. We think about our consumerism in the United States, and it fits hand in glove with our point that we're making with our comfort, and how much money we spend on things that probably a month later we've forgotten about. They're in the back of a closet, back of a drawer. We've also added tech to the list. I'm afraid we've got a little bit of a problem with that. That the idea, and, and this may... Now, this is getting way beyond my pay grade here. But this idea of artificial intelligence, I, I'm wondering where that's going to lead us as we begin almost now letting a machine think for us. What do you think Samuel would say to that? I think Samuel might say, you need to put those idols away. 
Not that it's wrong, not that it's something that can't be useful, but when it becomes your main focus, the one or the thing to whom you give your full attention, that's the danger in all of this. But let me strike at one that maybe is a little closer to home. I think for all of us, there is a very grave danger of making God into the idol Israel made him into. Where we think that God, His entire purpose of existence is to do our bidding. You ever find yourself thinking like that? You think, man, I have asked God for an answer so many times on this and He's not giving it to me. I've asked Him for better health. I've asked Him to make my load lighter. I've asked Him to help me find a job and He just ignores me. Do we not find a tinge of that kind of reasoning in all of this? That God somehow is there for His entire purpose to make sure my life is okay. We certainly need to pray about those things. God tells us to. Cast your cares on me for I care for you. Pray about these things. Put worry away. But we must never get to the point of where we think He's our own personal genie of the lamp. That, that we can just rub it a couple of times and then God's going to do our bidding for us. It's exactly what got Israel into this mess with the Ark of the Covenant. And we've got to avoid that as well. And so really what that boils down to is we've got to know who God is. We, we can't know God through the lens of our grandma. We can't know God through the lens of our preacher. We've got to know who He is from His lens of what He's told us about Himself. And when we can do that, then what we're going to find is that we can know the King. I've often thought about Malachi chapter 1. As Malachi here is writing to the people of God. And he says, Cursed is the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord for, uh, for what is blemished. But then it's the next line that's so alarming. Where God has to say to the people, I'm a great king. They didn't know that. They'd forgotten that or ignored it. And God says, you got to remember, I'm the great king, says the Lord of armies. And my name will be feared among the nations. Let's not ever fall to that point of forgetting or perhaps never even knowing who God really is. Well, let me leave you with one final one that, that Samuel tells the people here. He says, what you've got to do is just give your heart to God. And that encapsulates all of this. Loving God with all your heart. Putting away the idols. Treating Him with gravity and respect. We consider this from a more New Testament word. And that being an established heart. Think about it from what the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians. Therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him. And established in the faith. If you're established, what that means is that the changing winds of life are not going to take your faith away. You get the bad report at the doctor, it's not going to destroy you. You get a pink slip at work, it's not going to destroy you. 
People don't treat you like you think you ought to be treated. It's not going to destroy you. Brethren misbehave. It's not going to destroy you. Because your faith is in God. And it's a faith not in word only, but a faith that is so established that you are firmly implanted on His word and nothing's going to knock you off of that. And so as Samuel spoke to these people so many years ago, he said to them the exact same things you and I need to hear. That it's all about God. And it's all about doing His will and understanding in His great benevolence what He's given to us. And then giving ourselves totally to Him. We looked at the hand of the Lord in kind of a negative way, but let me, let me leave it in a positive. The hand of God still saves. Still saves. Because the hand that can bring destruction also brings salvation to lift us up. And maybe that's the, the message that you and I need to hear this morning. That no matter how things look, the hand of God is there for us if we put ourselves firmly on His side. So I would encourage you this morning that if you've been delaying the decision to be a Christian, the prophet Samuel's told you how this morning. <laughs> now, he didn't know from the standpoint of baptism, but he knew from the point of what it means to be a follower of God. And as we now live on this side of the cross, we know that God says, for salvation to occur, you respect my glory, you, ex you respect my heaviness, you ex respect the fact that in the waters of baptism, my grace will be extended to you to wash your sins away. If you're ready to take hold on that loving hand of God today, I hope you won't delay to do that. You can come as we stand and sing together. <clears throat>